es un asunto en el que la sociedad civil siempre ha jugado un papel fundamental. La sociedad civil. Civil society. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Welcome back to The Grassroots View, the podcast of the European Economic and Social Committee. This episode is about the forthcoming Conference of the Parties to the Paris Climate Agreement, also known in shorthand as COP27. This month, negotiators from the agreement's signatory states, the parties, are meeting in Egypt, the conference, to discuss progress towards tackling the urgent issue of global warming. Working towards a net-zero carbon Europe by 2050 is the core of the European Union's policy framework, and it's something that affects us all, every day and increasingly. Ahead of the summit, the EESC adopted, at its plenary session in October, a resolution entitled Jointly Tackling an Existential Threat, Social Partners and Civil Society for Implementation of Ambitious Climate Action. The resolution, which contains 40 recommendations, will be presented to the summit by the six members of the committee who authored it, one of whom, Sandra Parti, is among our guests for this edition of The Grassroots View. Joining her to provide their perspectives are Adelaide Charlier, a Belgian climate change and human rights campaigner, Frédéric Simon, a French journalist who's energy and environment editor of Euractiv, and Louisa Neubauer, a climate justice and human rights campaigner from Germany. First, Sandra, to you. Tell us a bit more about that resolution. We have a document that really addresses uh, in detail what we think is important with regards to implementation of the various agreed measures, uh, commitments, plans and pledges. We also see and call for the necessity to step up the level of ambition when it comes to actually tackling climate change. We do are, we, we are experiencing a climate um, emergency. So um, this is really what we want to highlight that it's important to take action now. We have no time to wait. Luisa, what concerns do you have as both a climate justice campaigner and a human rights activist about COP27? Coming to a place to discuss climate justice of course, needs to, you know, needs to be based on understanding that the climate crisis is, after all, the, the, the greatest human rights crisis um, ever. More than 60,000 political prisoners in, in the country of Egypt. Every human rights you can think about being um, harassed by the Egyptian regime. So we do wonder, of course, how just can such a conference, such a country actually be? You know, in terms of Egypt, not, don't even have a single climate target for 2050, for instance, and now claiming to be sustainable and green and, you know, all focused on climate justice, where we see not only greenwashing happening, but in these places, we're also seeing some kind of human rights washing that is happening, which is hugely worrying. Adelaide, it seems to be a common complaint at COP meetings, regardless of where they're held, that civil society doesn't get enough space. Yeah, this, this is a bit scary or very sad in a way, too, because civil society is the one player that has been very strong the past years in the climate negotiations to pressure as high as possible, as strong as possible, to have the highest ambitions to face climate change, to have the best and the strongest measures uh, to face climate change. 
And they kept on asking to actually have that space inside the negotiations and therefore inside the decision process. So the fact that they cannot play such a big role at this COP27 is actually a huge part of the democratic process that is needed to face climate change that is missing here. And and this is just really, really sad. And it's also just not okay. Frederick, as a journalist, what's been your experience of the preparation for media organisations ahead of COP27? The only contacts that we have had with the organisers of COP27 was during briefings that they organised. And when they did those briefings, they were pretty open um, about the issues related to the discussion at COP27. They didn't talk about the issues related to media freedom, but they but they were open about discussing the issues which are being discussed at COP27, things like loss and damage or the contribution of, of rich countries to this climate adaptation fund or, or green fund for climate. They were very open to talk about these uh, issues. So I would say that in our own dealings with the organisation, we've been relatively positively surprised. And overall, how would you say the coverage of climate change issues and the COP in general is evolving in Europe? Um, you know, climate change used to be this thing which we used in, in the media to use pictures of polar bears uh, isolated on the ice cap. Nowadays, it's much more concrete. There are heat waves almost uh, on a yearly basis now, forest fires, incredibly warm winters or autumns like we've seen this year, floods, devastating floods, causing billions of euros in damage like we had last year in Belgium and, and Germany. So climate change is, is, is real, it's happening. And this is something that people can now feel. And so we're, we're moving away from this idea that it's, it's, we're doing this for the, for the polar bears. No, we're doing it for ourselves. Sandra, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is a successful COP possible? What would it look like? It would be a success if really there's concrete agreement on what to do next. So what do we have to achieve within the next six months? What do we start doing the day after the conference? So what are the policy issues that you will be really pushing at home as a government to really make a difference, to really change behavior, change consumption patterns, change production patterns, be it um, the way sort of a normal citizen consumes or be it really government-led policy measures to phase out fossil fuels, etc. So the real concrete commitments that governments are taking, that people are taking, that companies are taking. Luisa, the same question to you. What would be a successful outcome at COP from your perspective? Um, a successful COP? I don't think, I'm not sure if that is possible, but what we can see at COP is real commitment for loss and damage that needs to come from the global north. What we can see at COP is the face at the front lines to be actually represented at the front pages, which must, of course, be centered around African voices who are so crucial in all of this. And what we ask, what we can see are finance commitments, our mitigation commitments, and our governments, democratic governments around the world taking a stance for human rights. There is not the successful COP in my understanding, but what we can see are important steps, important perspectives to be highlighted. Adelaide, when we talk about climate justice in relation to the COP, what does that mean for you? 
the first one that will be touched by the consequences of the climate change are usually people with less economical capital and therefore also countries with less economical capital. So here you also have another human rights aspect. Well, you have this aspect of climate injustice, the ones that emit the most CO2, that use the most fossil fuel, if we stay with that example, are not the ones that suffer the most from the consequences of climate change. And this means that the ones who are touched, by living the consequences of climate change, we are actually taking away their main human rights, being having access to water. For example, if you're facing droughts where your house was taken away, then having access to a place to live and etc. So here again, when they are faced with the consequences of climate change, they, we are in a way indirectly, indirectly taking away their human rights. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Louisa, I want to ask you about greenwashing. We hear a lot about it, but what does it actually mean? Well, greenwashing is technically just a mechanism by which governments, institutions, or you know anyone else really tries to appear more climate friendly, as you say, more more green, more ecological, more aware, more just than they actually are. We are seeing that most of the efforts are not being put into actual mitigation and actual climate action, but into green PR work, into green marketing, into green lobbying. And that is absurd, of course, when it comes to places like Germany or our last um, climate conference that held, was held in the UK, where we really saw a lot of greenwashing happening around the government. In this climate conference scenario now, we're seeing that authoritarian regimes are also doing that, which is, of course you know, another level of absurdity. Frederick, journalists are frequently the target of PR efforts, which could be described as greenwashing, aren't they? Yes, there is a lot of greenwashing happening. There's a lot of confusion. Companies are trying to you know, flood you with, with numbers, with figures, with reports, telling you how great they're doing and how much of a leader they, they are. Obviously, these are very difficult for us journalists to verify when you're being flooded with numbers and reports. There's, there's no way that you can do an independent review of this. So uh, to do that, uh, we rely to a great extent on, well, the institutions themselves, because the institutions come up supposedly with the authoritative voice as to what are the figures. And also we rely to a great extent on the NGOs to provide a critical analysis because they have resources to do that, uh, NGOs or, or, or think tanks. Adelaide, encapsulate for us what greenwashing means to you. I'm, I'm going to keep using the same example because the main aspect and main problem here, again, is our fossil fuel addiction in the world. What's actually happening is that still today, even though the International Energy Agency told us to stop, we're still investing and still preparing fossil fuel projects. The problem is this constant paradox between the little parts that we are putting into the change and still our massive budget and time and capacity is staying in the same place as before. That is still called greenwashing because it's not because you're changing 2%, 10% or 15% of your industry that you're changing it. You need to fully change deeply, systematically where you're investing and the projects that you're putting on the table. 
Sandra, is there a danger we're becoming a bit too cynical about this? So many people feel a deep personal commitment to climate action. It is important that we recognise the efforts that are done by people, grassroots initiatives from installing solar panels on on company roofs uh, to having new construction material to developing ideas of how to clean up the oceans. All of these efforts need to be much more visible. They need to become much more examples so that there is a sort of positive vision of what we are trying to achieve and what we can come up with, as opposed to, you know, just fear and uh, anger and um, perhaps a feeling of uh, yeah, being threatened. We can do things. Um, there are solutions out there. Well, having said that, some people are concerned about the big rise in energy prices caused largely by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that perhaps we can't afford to transition away from oil, gas and coal. What do you make of that? There's basically two ways of going about it. One is to sort of say, oh, we just we have to go back. We have to sort of use all our fossil fuel plants and we have to burn every last bit of coal that we might still find in our own sort of territory. And uh, that way, potentially become a bit less um, independent from imports. That is rather short-sighted, of course. So um, the other approach is to say, well, this is now really um, the wake-up call, if everyone was needed again, to go down this route of uh, green transition, of decarbonizing our industry, of uh, decarbonizing basically our societies. Louisa, your thoughts, please, on balancing environmental imperatives with the ongoing energy crisis. We are in a fossil fuel energy crisis because of irresponsible fossil fuel management and because of all the dependencies to autocrats that governments had put societies in. So the answer to these crises must, of course, be renewable. And as we're seeing it right now, ramping up renewables in Europe, for instance, is so much more realistic so much more affordable and so much quicker than any kind of new fossil fuel dependencies that can be created. And of course, throughout this winter, we will need to be flexible on our energy supplies and we will need, for instance, to just you know take up some more coal in countries like Germany. But this can only be a short-time support. Frederick, do you think the European Union institutions are going to succumb to pressure to slow the pace of transition? Even though there has been some kind of, you know, falling back on sort of old energy sources like coal, because we don't have this cheap Russian gas uh, available as much as we used to. But still on the policy side, it's been remarkable to note that uh, the reaction from the institutions with the support so far of all EU countries was to increase the ambition of the European Union when it comes to increasing targets on renewables and energy efficiency. And that is quite uh, remarkable. It doesn't translate yet into a new target for the EU, but you can more or less uh, be safely predict that next year the EU will come up with a revised target that is going to be higher than what we have so far. Adelaide, a final word from you. You've been to COP meetings before. What do you recall in particular from last year's COP in Glasgow? I was there and the biggest delegation 
that had access to the COP, if we can call it a delegation, of 506 badges where people working into the fossil fuel industry, young citizens, have barely access to these places. How come? They are sharing and putting forward common goals, like goals for all. And so where the private world has more access to these spaces than people who are trying to also have common goals uh, for all, this is also where I see a problem. And then we also have to look into who's sponsoring the cops, right? I mean, this is a huge deal. Of course, if last year you have gas sponsoring, gas industry sponsoring the cop, you will never see on paper that we need to get out of gas. Adelaide, thanks to you and to Frederick, Luisa and Sandra, our other guests, for their insight and perspectives as the world gathers in Egypt for a meeting whose outcome we should all be watching and wishing well. That's all for this podcast, but we'll be back soon when we'll bring you more news and information from the EESC with the grassroots view.